Do you want to know more about vampires, werewolves, zombies, and man-made monsters? Would you like to know more about the classic Universal Monster movies responsible for creating the entire horror genre? Then listen to our podcast, Let's Talk Monsters. Where we discuss everything monsters. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. From the Apostrophe Podcast Network. Previously on Booby Trap. Friends for Falco was a petition that was circulated around the community. They believe, you know, that he doesn't deserve to be charged and that Richie got what he had coming to him. I believe that we were definitely groomed by Chuck Falco. This was a child molester, a sexual predator, who, of course, at the time, they weren't even investigating that. Well, I'm sure he felt pretty untouchable. His confidence was all the way up. He got away with everything. Yeah, he did. And they set this guy loose on the street again. And the first thing he starts planning is, how do I get revenge on Jerry Burkowski? The Russians usually have it all locked up. This time, it's the closest Olympic ice hockey contest in history. Former Beatle John Lennon is dead. He was shot a short time ago outside his Manhattan apartment Here, building. Police speculate that Chapman arrived in New York last week. He had begun to stalk Lennon from his room here. the death of Richard Brush and the aftermath of the shooting behind us, one would think that that's the end of the story. The community had rallied to support Chuck with their Friends for Falco campaign, and Chuck got away with a slap on the wrist. He was able to keep his life as a pedophile and a sexual predator a secret. But as you'll see in this episode, the story is far from over. Back in 1982, Chuck still had a score to settle with Jerry Burkowski. And Mike, while doing research for his book in 2010, started to notice inconsistencies with the evidence that was supposed to support the official version of the shooting. And we'll look into this later. 
But first, I asked Mike to continue with his narrative, picking up where we left off with Chuck receiving a light sentence and the kids in the neighborhood moving on into the 1980s. Welcome to Season 1 of the Miami Chronicles Booby Trap, Episode 6. Hold on for one sec. I'm gonna, I, I, I had to open the door. Yeah. Hey, what are you doing? Come inside. That's it. You're done. No. What's going on over there? <laughs> my dog was just... I can't... Oh, my God. All right. So, um... Okay. Now that the dogs are all sorted out... Tell me, what was 1980 like for you? Yeah, 1980. God, that that number scared me. It really did. I remember New Year's Eve. My mom, one of my mom's best friends, um, we used to call them Uncle Alex and, and Aunt Madrina. It turns out that their wedding anniversary was New Year's Eve. So every year, they'd have this huge party. Then it was like our family tradition that we would always go over to their house. And they had a really, they were more upper class than we were. They were sort of like upper middle class and they had like a nicer house. And Uncle Alex had a pool and he had a, there was like a canal that ran behind his house. He had boats. So we'd go in the, the little rowboat and we'd go out on the canal and my brother would fish and stuff like that. Hmm. So uh, yeah, those parties were great and they were Hispanic. And so it was a very Spanish oriented celebration, you know, lots of dancing Music, constantly playing salsa music, and then lots of booze, you know, (laughs) boozing it up big time. That that doesn't Um, sound so scary. No, no, that's the good part. So I remember uh, 1979, um, I was 14 and we went over to Uncle Alex's house. I think I drove over there with my brother who had just recently gotten his driver's license. And I remember during the countdown, you know, just seeing the, the 80. 1980 and just thinking like god that eight looks weird because think about it you're the same age as i am um pretty much for my whole life it was a seven right (laughs) i mean i had a little bit of a memory of a six yeah you know like the 68 69 but i mean i was three and four years old so it was you know it didn't really have much meaning for me so when i saw that eight it it just scared me in this way that it was like it's the fear of the unknown like what is this eight gonna bring and I think, you know, you probably agree with me in this, is that even as early as 1980, um, we all sort of thought that the 80s was going to be the decade that was going to bring us, like, more technology. Mm-hmm. Like, synthesizers were already pretty, you know, prevalent in music. Um, yeah, we believed the future was imminent and soon we would have colonies on mars and uh flying cars and robot girlfriends yeah right (laughs) (laughs) what happened but as early as like 1980 81 82 things changed in my neighborhood and sort of the whole rock and roll thing Um, even though punk came out in the mid 70s and i was aware of it like you know Everyone has that one friend in the neighborhood who's always like ahead of the curve. And for me, it was Albert Montoto. And, you know, he was always like up on the latest bands and the latest musical trends. 
I didn't realize it was going to become a movement. And the punk thing, you know, that first generation punk thing didn't last very long. It only lasted, you know, like maybe two years, two or three years. And then it was pretty much on the new wave and post-punk. Another thing that was happening in my neighborhood was my house, which is a really big part of the mm -hmm. story. My house was no longer ground zero starting in like 1981. My brother had a friend who lived up the street, same street, but just like uh, a couple avenues up from where we lived. His name was Al Lewis. And he and my brother just were inseparable. And Al Lewis was more or less became like the de facto leader of our little neighborhood gang. And um, and my brother was like his trusty sidekick. Okay. And so his mom, Al Lewis's mom, she moved out and just gave the house to Al and his sister. And that house became the new ground zero. So starting in around 81-ish, I didn't have to deal anymore with, you know, these sudden come home and all of a sudden there's like 15 people. It turns into 20, turns into 30, all partying in my house. And it's just like... How the hell did this happen? You know, eating our food, and, you know, smoking pot and just like, I can't even go into my bedroom because there's like two of my brother's friends having sex with these chicks or something, borrowing my bedroom, you know? I had, I had the same house. Right. So yeah, so you know what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. Right. So that was another thing that changed, that shifted in my neighborhood. But my brother and his gang, they were so, they kind of ran the neighborhood, I have to say. I mean, they were, you know, they were more or less thugs. Mm-hmm. They didn't do a lot of breaking the law, but they were just, they were into partying, you know, they had lots of drugs, and they were into um, lots of sex, and just living it up that way. So what was going on with that gang of kids, all of those kids from, uh, the summer of 1979 and uh what were they doing and what were you hanging out with any of them as far as the other kids in my immediate circle of friends since none of my friends except for tony simmons were really connected or close with richie um leanna was because she had been dating richie but leanna and i weren't hanging out anymore because we had broken up and Bob Lane had moved on, like he he never talked about the Richie thing anymore. And um, the only person was Tony Simmons, really. Of all of my friends, nobody really cared about it. Certainly my brother's friends didn't care about it. The kids who were in Richie's neighborhood, which like I said, was like one neighborhood over. Like, um, I think those kids were more, you know, affected by it for obvious reasons. And so I think it took them longer to sort of process what happened and everything. But since they weren't really my friends, you know, I knew them. They were acquaintances, you know, like the other scouts in the troop. Um, so the two that I would say that I knew the best, you know, that were that, who were also friends of Richie would have been Jerry Bukowski and um, Willard Allensworth. Yeah. Well, it sounds like everybody just moved on. Yeah, basically. Yeah, that's that's pretty much what happened. Um, they had moved on. Not me, of course. And that's because of it's because of that cassette. I'll never forget that night. And, you know, the way that Bob Lane 
told me that story. And to this day, I, you know, I, I don't think he was making it up. It was just too real. So Tony started hanging out with Chuck after the dust settled. I remember one day I was hanging out at Tony's house and um, he said something that Chuck was waiting for him at the corner. I think it might have been his mom or something. But somebody came over and said, hey, uh, Chuck wants to talk to you. He's at the intersection, like at the corner. So he didn't want to come to Tony's house for some reason. And then Tony wouldn't let me walk with him. I didn't want to. I I was still afraid of that guy. Um, so I think I just hung out at Tony's house and like talked to his mom for a little while while he walked to the corner to, to, to meet with Chuck. So he was still sort of talking to the guy or connected to the guy in some way. Why? What, what was he getting out of it? Like weed or something? Probably. I really don't know. You know, I think whenever I asked him about it, he would just say he was still getting stuff that Richie had stolen like that's what, and I knew that was probably wasn't true. Like Tony was probably bullshitting me, but he would say something like, oh yeah, Chuck found another one of my little whiskey bottles and he wanted to give it back to me. And that's why he met with me. And I'm like, that's not true. All right. So he was just covering. So I don't know what was going on. I do know around the same time, Tony came over one day and um, he had been punched in the face. You know, he had probably had broken his nose because he had the two black eyes that you get when you break your nose. And um, he was wearing his glasses. He was actually wearing his sunglasses to kind of cover. But I could see that there was a, you know, a pretty nasty bruise mark on his nose. And it was kind of swollen. And then when he took his glasses off, it was, you know, his eyes were all just purple, you know, underneath. So somebody had whacked him pretty hard. And I never got the truth of that. And you think that might have been Chuck? It could have been Chuck. But I never really got to the bottom of what really happened to Tony. Yeah. And what about Chuck? What was going on with him in like 80, 81? I didn't really, you know, me not really knowing Chuck that well and not really staying abreast of what he was doing. I mean, I I can only assume that he was on probation and he was serving his sentence, you know, his jail time. Weekends. yeah. Yeah, weekends or whatever, off weeks or whatever. So he served all of that and he was, you know, pretty much a free man. And was he still a scoutmaster at this point? Well, first of all, no. He was let go pretty much right after the shooting. He was dismissed from the scouts. Um, There was an article that someone sent me, and they mentioned the fact that even though he had already been involved in this shooting and lost control of Scouting Troop 85, that he tried to get another scoutmaster job. This is later now. This is like in the mid to late 80s. Because enough time had gone by after the Ritchie shooting. But then what happened was he was rejected, I think, again, because of the stuff that happened with Jerry. Right. And to be honest with you, I mean, a lot of the kids in the neighborhood, while they weren't like on Chuck's side, because a lot of them didn't know Chuck that well to even really be on his side. Most of the kids in the neighborhood were more sympathetic to Chuck than they were to Ritchie. Um, I was just talking to someone yesterday and, um, and she told me outright, she just said, she goes, yeah, you know, to be honest with you, Mike, we didn't know anything about the molestation at the time. So you have to remove that from what we thought. But she being one of the kids who knew Richie and, you know, was part of that community, she believed that, you know, 
what Chuck did wasn't all that bad. I mean, he was just protecting his property and Richie was the bonehead breaking into the guy's house and wound up getting himself killed. Um, there's a reason why you shouldn't break into people's houses this is more or less what the, the neighborhood feeling was. So what about Jerry Burkowski at this time? Jerry really got the worst of it. Jerry was the one who really, nobody thought well of him because everyone thought that he was with Richie. He hears the gunshot and he runs and he doesn't even call for help. He just runs home and he pretends like nothing happened. And even though later on, after they did an autopsy, the coroner said, look, there was no chance for this kid. He got shot in the main artery of the heart. He bled to death within two to three minutes. Even if a doctor was standing right next to him, they couldn't have saved his life. It was a lethal wound, you know. But Jerry didn't know that. There was no way Jerry could have known how bad Richie had been shot. So all Jerry knew was that something bad happened to Richie. And instead of trying to help his friend or getting help for his friend, he just ran away and just pretended like he wasn't even there. Mm -hmm. For a while there, he was even just saying like he was with Richie when Richie was watering the lawn at four o'clock and then he went home and did chores. And that was the story that he stuck to. And then he didn't find out about Richie getting shot until later that night when one of the other scouts called him and said, hey, just want to let you know that your best friend is dead and then hung up on him. So that's a story that Jerry told until eventually he did confess that he was there. You know, the cops or whoever, you know, the state attorney, I mean, they said, look, we know you were with Richie. We're not going to prosecute you. We just want to know what you know. Because they pretty much just assumed that Jerry just helped Richie get through the window and that was it. And then was just the lookout. They, they were willing to let that go to just have this kid on the record and help them build a case against Chuck. But we in the neighborhood, we kids, we had a different standard. And we felt like Jerry was just a scumbag. And he just, you know, no one wanted to hang out with him. So he moved. He went to a different neighborhood. He, he went to a different high school. He just left that whole world behind him and started fresh. And nobody knew, very few people knew about his past and what he was involved in. So let's talk about what happened to Jerry on the night of July 18th, 1982. So um, he was just hanging out one night and um, he hears someone knocking at his window. It's like one or two in the morning and someone's tapping or throwing rocks on his window or something like that to get his attention. And he looks out the window and he sees Willard Allensworth, who had been one of the scouts. And um, Willard was, uh, was, from my perspective, always a really nice guy. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, he was the same age as me and he was in, in, in my grade. I think I even had a couple classes with him at Thomas Jefferson. Would you say that he was a good friend of Jerry's? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. He and Jerry were really good friends. Okay. Richie and Jerry and Willard, the three of them, were all in Scouting Troop 85. And they all went to Thomas Jefferson and they were all in the same grade. And those three guys, they were like close friends. Like they were, they were tight, you know. And Willard had been on the camping trips and it's assumed that he was probably also molested, 
but he and Chuck stayed close. And, you know, he, he, Willard had, for some reason that I don't know, and he's passed away now, so there's no way to talk to him. Um, Chuck had something with Willard. They were close. And Willard stayed loyal to Chuck. And um, I'm pretty sure that Chuck was doing stuff with Willard that he shouldn't be doing sexually. And um, all I can assume is that Willard was cool with it. Okay, so... On this particular night, he's Jerry's just hanging out at home. Yeah. So Jerry's living now at 125th Street, and he hears someone knocking at the window, and it's Willard Allensworth, someone he hadn't seen in a while. And Willard is standing out there in his backyard wearing nothing but gold Speedos, like really tight basketball shorts or something like okay. that. Like back in the days when they used to wear those really, really tight you know those short shorts you know i don't know if you remember that now like when you watch basketball they wear the really long ones you know but if you look at basketball from like 1980 or 81 they all wore those really tight mini (laughs) short shorts or whatever they're called and so that's what willard was wearing like his, his little tight gym shorts and nothing else he had no shoes on he had no socks he had no shirt And um, he was enticing Jerry to come out and have sex with him. That's basically what he was trying to do. And he's, you know, um, this was, you know, later was part of public record. And so Jerry doesn't know what to think. Now, it's assumed that, you know, if you look at all the evidence and stuff, is that these two guys probably had had sex with each other in the past. And, um, And Willard was there enticing Jerry and the... The only thing I can think of to make it make sense is that Jerry must have liked having sex with with Willard because, you know, if obviously if he didn't, then Willard would just be wasting his time. Right. He'd be like, hey, have sex with me. But I didn't like it with you the first time. So why would I want to do it again? So obviously, if you put the pieces together and you just sort of, you know, look at it logically, it was this was something that from Chuck and Willard's standpoint it was like, hey, I've got an idea, you know, why don't we go to Jerry's house and you try to lure him out by giving him something that he likes, something that he wants, something like something that will tempt him, you know, and we just need to get him into this van. And as it turns out, this is what Chuck had been thinking about the whole time that he had been, you know, serving his jail time and been on probation and appealing this conviction was how to get back at Jerry. Yeah. Now, if we go back and, you know, we've talked about in previous episodes, the friction that had existed between Jerry and Chuck, the fact that Jerry had resisted Chuck's advances, mm-hmm. right? And Chuck had Jerry ostracized from the, uh, the scouting troop, had him kicked out. Um, and Chuck assumed for a while there that it was Jerry who was breaking into his house and most likely set up the booby trap thinking that he was going to get Jerry, um, literally kill two birds with one bullet in the sense that not only would he stop the burglar, but he would also get rid of the one kid that could compromise him because Chuck didn't have anything on Jerry. Supposedly Chuck didn't have pictures of Jerry doing sex acts and things like that. The, The things that Chuck was using to control and manipulate the other boys, he didn't have that power over Jerry. So he was afraid of Jerry.
We'll be right back. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is 1982 now, and it's July 18th, 1982. It's the three-year anniversary of Richie's death. And Chuck gets Willard to come with him, gets Willard to agree to have sex with Jerry. And because Willard is so loyal to Chuck, he goes along with it. So um, this is pretty serious stuff. This is pretty scary, serious stuff. And if anyone doubts the kind of person that Chuck really is, um, and what I saw when I met him in the park, I mean, this confirms everything. This is not a guy who... Uh, is a Vietnam vet and was just protecting his property. So he set up a booby trap. And then when somebody actually got killed, he felt so bad about it. And he's got the sad face in all of the television clips that we have. And we look at him and he's, you know, oh, woe's me, um, all of that stuff. I do believe that he felt bad that it was Richie. But I can tell you that if that had been Jerry who got killed breaking into going through the bathroom door, um, he would not have been sad. He would have put on the same act, you know, to get away with it. But um, but deep inside, he'd be celebrating. And when you consider what could have happened to Jerry that night, it would have been pretty gruesome, you know. Yeah. When this guy was threatening me, I had no doubt in my mind that, that um, he would cut my throat if he thought I was stealing from him, and, and he wouldn't even feel bad about it. By refusing to leave with Willard Allensworth, Jerry probably saved his own life that night. And we can only speculate as to why. Maybe he felt that Willard had some sort of ulterior motive, and he didn't trust the situation, or he just wasn't interested in Willard's advances. We'll never know for sure. But what he didn't know was that in a little yellow house just across the street lived a nosy, pesky old lady. She had been awakened by a noise earlier that night, and when she looked out the window, she saw an unfamiliar white van parked nearby. She noted the time. It was 2 a.m. After an unspecified amount of time, maybe 10 or 15 minutes later, she looked out the window again, and the van was still there. So, she called the cops. The cops came by to do a routine check just to see... And sure enough, what they come across is they find Chuck and Willard sitting in the the van um, and they see that this kid's practically naked. And, you know, Willard, you know, he was a teenager. He wasn't an adult yet. Mm -hmm. 
So just based on that and the fact that they didn't really have a good excuse as to why they were there, the cops thought that that was enough to check the van. And when they opened up the back of the van and they, what was revealed to them was like, okay, this is basically it was a torture chamber. And in this white van are chains and straps to hold a victim down. And there's thumb cuffs and handcuffs and a few different knives, hunting knives, military knives. One of those knives is probably the same one that Chuck showed me in the park when he pulled it out and put it on the park bench in front of me. He had two guns. One of them had a silencer attached to it. You know, he was probably thinking he would take him out to the Everglades somewhere or something, you know, and shoot him when all was said and done. Now, they probably thought that Willard was in danger. They had no idea. They, see what I'm saying? Yeah. They probably thought that this crazy guy, this, you know, 35-year-old guy has got this 17-year-old, 16, 17-year-old boy, and he's going to torture him, you know? But then Willard basically says, no, 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 I'm, no, that's not what's going on here. So the cops are confused, you know, but they wind up arresting Chuck for loitering or some basic thing just to get to the bottom of it, you know. And so then the whole thing comes out. And so he was uh, arrested on weapons charges Um, and attempted kidnapping, um, some pretty serious stuff. And he was smart in that he waited for the probation period to end before he attempted this. If this had happened while he was still on probation, then he would have gone to jail for the 30 years Mm -hmm. for the manslaughter, you see. So who told the police Chuck's plan to go after Jerry? Was it Willard who told them that? Yeah, eventually it was Willard. Okay. And you found this out how? In Willard's deposition? It's, I found out about it by reading Jerry's second deposition. Jerry's deposition, okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I have nothing stated by Willard Allensworth, but I do have reference to Willard Allensworth in Jerry's deposition. Saying that they were there to go after Jerry. Yeah, exactly. And that's kind of a crazy thing, you know, when you think about what was going on behind the scenes um, with these guys, you know. The, the, yeah. By these guys, I mean Chuck and those who were loyal to Chuck, who still felt like a score needed to be settled with Jerry. And keep in mind that by now, there were rumors, some pretty strong rumors about the sexual molestation. And the state's attorney, Kogan, was her name, Lauren Kogan. She said in one of the um, transcripts that I have that she believed very strongly that some of the boys had been molested by Chuck, but she couldn't get any of them to testify. She couldn't get any of them to speak up about it because they were too embarrassed and they didn't. They just wanted to move on. They didn't want to deal with the stigma. And so that's where Willard probably turned right there because um, he, they probably, he probably said something to the effect of, I just don't want anyone to know about the sex stuff. I'll tell you, any, you know, whatever else you want to know, but I, I want to keep the sex stuff secret. After his second arrest, the media had taken a noticeably different stance with regards to Chuck. 
and public opinion had changed as well. Gone were the days of Friends for Falco, as people began to question just what was the relationship between their children and this man who once passed himself off as a valuable member of the community. The media was all over it because of what had already happened with Richie. It was in the newspapers and it was on the news again. And the headline was Scoutmaster in Trouble Again or something. So when the details of what he was attempting to do to Jerry came out, this time people started to see that like, okay, wait a minute. I think we were duped. This guy wasn't such an innocent guy and he wasn't such a positive addition to the community. We have a a news clip from the hearing where people were coming forward and saying stuff, you know, and this one guy basically says that Jerry was threatened by Chuck. He stated several times that he'd never get up and give it up until he would finally get Jerry Bukowski. Uh, Spoke about how somebody, or if I wanted to kill you, I could drive by with a shotgun Okay, just in case you didn't catch that, I'm going to repeat this now. Quote, he stated several times that he'd never give up until he'd finally get Jerry Burkowski. He spoke about that if I wanted to kill you, I could drive by with a shotgun, pull the shotgun out the window, and cut you in half. And no one would even recognize what went on. So these are the kinds of violent threats that, that were made on Jerry. Right. And what year does all this take place again? So this all starts in July of 82. That's when he's arrested. Right. And then it's in the media, like pretty much right away. But then the story sort of dies off because they didn't get around to this case for a while. And so the whole thing goes into... 83, and that's when Jerry gives a deposition. And then I think finally Chuck is sentenced in 83. And he was being held the whole time. He didn't make bail or anything. Well, that I'm not sure about, to be honest with you. Because the state was trying to prevent Chuck from getting out on bail because Chuck was considered a threat to Jerry Burkowski's life. Mm -hmm. And after they had the hearing... Based on what the judge said, and I have the video of him saying it, and he said, there's nothing that I heard today that convinces me that Jerry Bukowski is actually in danger. He basically just says, these are just circumstantial threats. Like, there's no evidence supporting any of this hearsay. (laughs) And I'm thinking, like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, what more do you have to do to threaten someone's life? I mean, but that's what the judge was saying. I haven't heard anything more than a series of potential threats over a period of three years. I haven't heard any evidence of any attempt being made to injure or harm anybody uh, sufficient to warrant uh, deprivation of liberty. Wow, when I saw that clip. Now, keep in mind, at the time, I didn't know this in 82. This is just something I discovered recently when, when we found this old news footage. But to realize that there was this hearing and that after hearing stuff like this guy who testifies and says that he knew that Chuck had threatened Jerry and threatened to cut him in half with a shotgun. And he says that on the video clip. And the judge is sitting there listening to that. And then the judge turns around and says, well, there's nothing here that really concerns me. You know, if you want to post bail, yeah, sure, go ahead, post bail. So while I'm not 100% sure, I do think that Chuck probably did make bail 
and probably did get out. But he was probably watched pretty closely. And Jerry moved again. They had relocated. Uh, where he was living was kept a secret. Um, and this time there was no way out of right. it. I mean, he was he was sitting there in this one clip that I saw where he's he's almost shaking. Like I mean, he is he's scared. Because the judge who's, this is a different judge now, the judge who's talking to him basically says, you realize that I could reimpose a 30-year sentence on you now. Do you understand, Mr. Falco, that the court can impose a sentence on the manslaughter charge of up to 30 years in state prison? I do now, sir. He said, what you're being convicted of now, even though your probation had ended, I can still sentence you to that 30 years hmm. that you could have gotten for the Richard Brush shooting. And I think at that point in time, all Chuck was trying to do was to not get convicted of that 30 years. He was willing to take anything less than that. And there was no wiggle room for him anymore. I was pretty amazed when I looked at some of the court records at how much, um, how many uh, charges were filed against Chuck initially, that he was facing a lot of years in prison. And the state did a plea bargain with none of this going to trial. The state was willing to throw out like half of the convictions. And they just really went after like the two or three things that they could really get him on, make sure that he was going to spend some time in jail. And so ultimately, in the end, he got seven years. Once again, Chuck Falco would not go to trial. In 1983, by striking a deal with the state by pleading guilty to the lesser weapons charges, and admitting that he had violated his probation, he received a seven-year sentence and, due to good behavior, served only three years. By 1986, Chuck was out of prison and back in his old North Miami Beach neighborhood. But he would only stay for a short while, eventually moving north to a town called Loxahatchee, where he would try to get reinstated once again as a scoutmaster. There's no doubt that Chuck believed Jerry was the mastermind behind the break-ins. And while that's probably not true, all the evidence does point to Richie being the leader and the main person behind the burglaries. There seems to be more to the shooting than the official version. To the police, it was clear that Richie was killed by the booby trap mechanism. And since Chuck had admitted to setting it up, they didn't see any need to investigate further. But after talking to Mike and hearing his side of the story, it's pretty obvious that there was a lot more to it, and the investigation left many loose ends unresolved. And, in addition, there's the matter of the horrific cassette recording of Richie's final moments. How was Tony's cassette player able to capture the sounds that Bob Lane had heard? And why did Chuck seem to have known more about the shooting than he led others to believe? It was later stated in an open court hearing that Chuck always believed Jerry Burkowski was in his house the day that Richard Brush was killed, and that Jerry Burkowski was directly responsible for the death of Richard Brush. Mr. Falco advised that he believed uh, 
Jerry Bukowski was in the house uh, the day of Richie Brush's death. But it took, if it took him the rest of his life, he would not rest until he proved uh, that Jerry Bukowski was in fact uh, in the house and responsible for Richard Brush's death. These statements were meant to be taken literally, not figuratively. But what do they mean? How did Jerry kill Richie? We're going to look at the evidence, sift through the inconsistencies and discrepancies, and try to see if we can put the pieces together. Okay, let's dig in a bit here and talk about some of these transgressions, or at least what appeared to be uh, contradictions of the official story on the night that Richie got shot. Yeah. So pretty early on when I got the police report, I just looked for consistencies. I mean, that's just the kind of person I am. Um, I'm kind of a skeptic and I try to follow the evidence. I try to stay with the evidence as best as I can. Um, But I got to be honest with you. I mean, right away I noticed, you know, there were two or three things that just jumped out at me that just didn't make sense. And you put this whole story together. And and like I said before, um, the cops really saw this case as a slam dunk. I mean, they just said, okay, booby trap set up. Boy doesn't know the trap is there. The boy opens the door, gets shot. He's dead. You know, we know who set up the booby trap. The, the, the owner of the house feels bad, didn't want to kill the kid. Um, like... It's not like they sent their best detectives and their forensic specialists, you know, to sort of try to figure out exactly like how this went, because, you know, there might be some doubt as to what really happened. And the truth is, is I don't I think this is one of those instances where they should have done that. Like, I don't think the official story really holds up. Um, Chuck had been he felt like he had to defend his house because of previous break ins that had been happening for a, a while. Right. Yeah. As far as the number of break-ins, there seems to be a little inconsistency there. Um, when Chuck's giving the statement to the detective, I think he says his house was broken into two or maybe three times previous. But then in another uh, report I was reading, someone was saying that Chuck's house had been burglarized um, seven times. So we don't know. It's for just Chuck's sh- word, basically. Right. It's Chuck's word. And, and we don't even know how many police reports, you know, how many times he called the cops to report that his house had been burglarized. And that might be the reason why, when he was talking to Fabio Alonso, the detective, that he said his house had only been broken into twice. Or th- I think what he said was, this was the third time, and there was two other times. Because when he was talking to his lawyer, he said, well, actually, I, you know, these kids were in my house multiple times, seven or eight times. You know, I just didn't tell the cops about it. Um, so we're not really sure. Well, I wonder if he, w- he wouldn't want anyone looking around who could inadvertently find something. Because he probably had a lot to hide. Which he did, right. The official story, the official police report includes the fact that they found Chuck's stash of marijuana. They found it. So they pretty quickly pieced this thing together and said, okay, the kid was trying to steal some pot from his scoutmaster. And I mean, in those days, I don't know what the amount of pot, you you know, I mean, you got to remember, this is when... uh, Pablo Escobar was like dropping tons of cocaine into the Miami area. The cops weren't really concerned with a guy who had an ounce of weed, you know. Mm -hmm. So the cops, part of the official story is that this is about the shooting. They're investigating the shooting and the death of this kid and the fact that the kid was breaking into the house. The fact that they found pot, 
that was something that they didn't really talk about. I don't know why. I mean, like I said, the only reason I can think of is that it just wasn't that much pot. You know, if they wanted to go after him for that, they could have, but they decided not to. It's weird that everything in this story seems to always come back around to weed. I know. And it's like this whole thing centers around pot. I mean, if if Richie wasn't (laughs) such a pothead, he would still be alive, you know? Yeah. Ever since this happened, going all the way back to when I first found out about the shooting and then the night that I heard about the cassette, I always suspected that there was more to this story. I didn't have any evidence for decades, you know, um, because the story about the cassette was so horrific and stayed with me in, you know, there were times where I just tried to forget about it. I didn't want to remember it, but it stayed with me and it just... There was something about the way that this whole thing unraveled that it just didn't sit right with me, that there was more to the story, that there were contradicting versions. And I would say, okay, well, this thing hasn't really been settled then. You know, someone needs to get to the bottom. And I honestly thought that the cops would get to the bottom. I mean, because after all, they're the cops. That's what they do. And, that you know, after a year or two, you know, when you're 14 a year is a long time. So I figured by the time I'm 16 or 17, there'll be some sort of official report, like they'll have all the loose ends tied up and we'll know exactly what happened, you know, the role that Jerry played and all this other stuff. But that never happened. Like, that's not the way these cases work. I mean, these cases are only relevant until they get a conviction and then they move on. They don't care. Like, they don't care if they tie up the loose ends. They don't care if they make every piece fit. That doesn't matter to them. And by them, I mean the state. So once they get fixated on something, a way to prosecute, they just stay with that. They're just very, very tunnel vision, very focused. So um, I always thought there was something wrong with the official story. And when I got the police report, the first thing I did was I looked at, you know, the stuff that the cops did document. When I saw the pictures and I read the details that are in the report, it was like a lot of gaps were filled, like the whole picture became clear to me. Um, I didn't have to imagine anymore because now I had it. But I didn't get that until, you know, 2010. So all those years from 1979 to 2010, it was just all in my head. And I was thinking, you know, okay, what else could have happened in that house? What other versions aside from the official story could have happened? Um, The first thing I considered or I was suspicious about was where the bullet hole was on the door. Um, It it was something that I hadn't really thought about much over the years. But when I got the police report, I thought it was really odd that the bullet hole was at three feet, one inches, which is just somewhere around the doorknob. Um, Specifically, it was like uh, three feet, one inches from the ground measured upward and then six inches from the nose of the door. And I just thought that was weird because I always imagined Richie being five foot seven, which is the same height I am right now, um, just sort of standing straight up and, you know, opening the door and pulling the door towards him. It's an inward opening door and which pulls the string and sets off the gun, discharges the gun and then gets shot in the chest. I always imagined that the bullet hole would be somewhere around four feet, you know, wherever my chest would be on me, which is probably around four feet. I don't know. Um, And so when 
that was just a weird, odd thing that stuck out to me. And I thought, well, why would the bullet hole be at three feet, one inches? Um, that would be around his, you know, his gut, like his stomach. So why didn't he get shot in the stomach? Right. It seems a little low. Yeah. And so that led me to start thinking, um, you know, this is funny how this process works, where I start questioning the whole official story, because I'm thinking, well, why didn't he get shot in the gut? Something went wrong. Something, and I don't know anything about ballistics. I'm not, you know, expert with firearms or anything like that. But it just common sense tells me, you know, perhaps he was not standing straight up. Maybe he was crouching over. And that led to a whole line of thinking that this, this rabbit hole that I went down where I started thinking that, well, Richie must have been hunched over and um, for some reason. And he was, you know, maybe. Well, if you're like, trying to be sneaky and are careful about something, right? Yeah. You might hunch over just instinctively. Right. But there was a problem with that because I knew that the door used to stick. And if the door sticks, right, we all have dealt with sticky doors. If you crouch the way that Richie would be crouching in order to, to line his heart up with where the bullet hole was, there's no way you can do that and not put your face in danger of getting hit by the door when the door releases. If the door is a sticky door and you're sort of tugging on it, and then when it releases, it's, it's always a little bit um, unsuspected. Like if that door snaps open, I'm going to get hit in the forehead or in the nose. No one likes to get hit in the nose or the forehead, okay? It's just a natural instinct that you want to protect your face. But if I know that that door is sticky and Richie knew that that door was sticky, then he would be doing that in a very cautious manner. He would be... The whole time he's crouched over, he'd be worried that, okay, when the door releases, it's going to, boom, hit me in the forehead or hit me in the nose or something, right? So once again, why do that? Right. Okay, well, let me just read this. In Chuck's statement on page seven, uh, Detective Alonzo asks, do you have any problems with the door leading to that bathroom? He, he's asking that because the cops already know that it sticks. Right. And then Chuck answers... That bathroom door gets stuck at times. Sometimes the smaller members of the Boy Scout troop will use the bathroom and it locks or sticks. Whereas you end up grabbing the handle and you end up twisting and twisting and you pull harder and then the door slams back. And then Detective Alonzo asks, could that make any difference to the way you had set up the booby trap with the rifle? And Chuck answers, it had to change the alignment. There's right. no other way it could have been changed. I'm glad you read that. Now, see, the point is that that shows two things, okay? That the cops were sympathetic to Chuck. I don't know why. I Maybe it's a military thing. Maybe they were Vietnam vets and they kind of like, they were. think of that episode of True Detective and how Vietnam vets kind of protect each other, you know? Yeah, that's a really good point. Exactly, yeah. Because they're probably, they probably were. You think about a lot of cops were in Vietnam. Yeah. And what also surprises me is that this is such a short, uh, it's not even a deposition or an interrogation. It's just a a rather brief seven-page statement lasting all of uh, like 18 minutes. Right. He like, he's, he's giving Chuck a softball right over the plate because like you said, the way you just read that, how could Alonzo know that the door stuck? They must have spoke before they started recording it. He's giving him um, a way out of this thing, basically saying, look, you say that you aim the gun at the wall, okay? This way, you know, 
you're not going to be charged with murder. The worst they could get you for is manslaughter because it's just reckless to set up a gun, right? In absentia. Um, and then we'll say that the sticky door is what caused the gun to move towards the door, which, you know, of course, made it lethal. So they have that right there. And, you know, we don't have to speculate because that's in the statement. That's an official, officially documented statement. We'll be right back. Okay, so tell me about the magic bullet theory. Yeah. So I spent hours and hours trying to figure this out, like why he would do that, you know, crunch over and knowing that the door is a hard door to open. um, It just never made any sense to me. Um, so finally, I made a note to myself in one of the early outlines, sort of in the margin. And it was, it, I said, you know, at some point I have to do all of the math that's required to figure out what exactly was happening with the bullet, the tra- trajectory of the bullet, you know, if it was going upward at what angle and, you know, and all this stuff. But I'm not very good at math and I didn't, you know, I just sort of put it off. But as it turns out, that was the key to figuring this whole thing out with the bullet hole. So finally, I got my wife involved, and she's really good at math, and I explained the situation to her, and I showed her the official police diagram, um, which is a a top-down sketch of the crime scene, and um, it's not to scale, which is kind of annoying. So you look at it and, you know, it says like a wall is 10 feet long, but it does, you know, it's, it's not in relation to the other walls they draw. So it's not in scale, but all of the measurements are there and the measurements are precise. So if you just ignore the picture and you just use the measurements, mm-hmm. um, you can calculate, you know, the trajectory of the bullet and um, and how it hit the door and, and everything. So we did that. We sat down with all of these numbers and all these measurements, and um, we started using you know some basic algebra. And what we found was that the the gun was set on a chair, and it was at two feet seven inches, and um, was angling slightly upward, which meant that when the gun fired, the trajectory of the bullet was going upward slightly at about like one inch per foot. It was like, it was kind of odd the way that the math seemed very even. It was, it was really weird when we did it. It was like, wait a minute, that's like one inch per foot. Like that's perfect. That's easy. You know, it was, it was something like that. So we just thought that was odd because it was like a nice, even number to play with an easy, easy, right. um, you know, factor or whatever. That's because the, the bullet hole in the report, it's one inch lower on the exterior side of the door and one inch higher on the um, bathroom side of the door, right? On the inward opening side. Right. But see, that's where it got weird. In other words, if you measure where the, the gun, the barrel of the gun was, and then the distance to the door, the the exterior door, you know, the, the, the side of the door that's not in the bathroom, um, it winds up hitting the door at three feet, one inches. When we looked at the interior side of the door, the, the side that, you know, inside of the bathroom, the, the bullet hole, the exit hole is at three feet, two inches. And I, di- I didn't think much of that. I really didn't think that that was a big deal because it's just one inch. And sometimes you figure, okay, well, maybe they just rounded it up. Like maybe it was even just, 
three feet one inch plus and then they just said oh screw it it's the three feet two inches you know it's exit you know exit hole mm-hmm. right but actually that extra inch was was crucial because if you consider these old plywood doors right this is a plywood door that has two sheets of plywood you know on the interior and exterior this is like nothing it's almost like cardboard you know and inside um they usually it's it's hollow like sometimes they even put like construction paper in there just to give it a little bit of resistance but um you know my brother actually punched through one of those once like easily he was like mad um we had one of those in my bedroom <laughs> and like punched right, right. through it and okay. so um but there's really nothing inside those doors and uh and and so I, you know, it didn't really strike me as that big a deal at, at the end of the day, you know. Um, the door is about one and three quarter inches thick, okay? But when we did the math, my wife immediately, she said, no, no, this is a big deal. And I said, what do you mean? And she goes, well, look, the trajectory of the bullet went up one whole inch in just the width of the door. So if you think about it, the bullet went in at three feet, one inch, and then when the bullet was inside of the door for that one and three quarters of an inch, the upward trajectory of the bullet changed drastically because it went up a whole inch. Remember, when the bullet traveled one foot to go up one inch before hitting the door. So it was a very slight upward trajectory. But then once the bullet hit the door, in that amount of distance, the trajectory of the bullet went up one whole inch. You see what I mean? Right. So it's a much, much you know, steeper angle once it hits the door. And once we had that, it was, we put the rest of the pieces together and I said, oh my goodness, the bullet ricocheted. Remember, it's a 22 projectile and 22 bullets are not, you know, hefty bullets. But the plywood door was, it was enough, either the um, exterior plywood or the interior plywood, which one of those pieces of wood was enough to change the trajectory of the bullet so that it was now traveling upward at a very steep angle. And Richie was probably standing about a foot behind the door. If, if you measure his arm length, right? Um, and once again, using myself as a model, I'm five foot seven. So I just measured my arm and I figured, okay, if he's, you know, and I just opened a door a normal way and I sort of, sort of measured, okay, where would I be standing if I was just opening a door a normal way, right? Standing straight up and all of that stuff. And once we measured where Richie was standing, and then we measured the trajectory of the bullet now traveling at a steep upward incline, right? It it landed exactly where my heart would be, where my heart is and where Richie's heart would be. It was eerie. It was just like, oh my God, there's, there's no crouching here. There's no, like he was standing straight up. But the sad thing is that if that bullet hadn't ricocheted, he just would have gotten shot in the stomach and probably would have survived. Um, or the bullet could have ricocheted in any direction. You know, it, it, could have, it could have just like missed him completely, you know. And it's just so weird that it, it wound up going in the one spot that would kill him. Yeah. I mean, it, it just, it's so unlucky. It's almost as if the fates just, you know, they had decided, no, this is, this is the end right here. Though Mike was convinced that the height of the bullet hole was an inconsistency with the official version of the shooting, after doing the math with his wife, 
he realized that there was really nothing suspicious about it at all. In fact, the bullet math actually helped to support the official version. But there was another inconsistency that had been bothering Mike. It was the matter of the orange tank top. Another thing to question that is very odd, and I had no knowledge of this until I got the police report, was that there was an article of clothing found next to Richie's body that did not belong to Chuck, and it did not belong to Richie. And to this day, nobody has given any answer as to where this article of clothing came from. You're talking about the orange tank top. Exactly. It's an orange tank top, okay, that was a tourist shirt, you know, for people, you know, go to Florida and you want to have like a little tank top to, you know, remember your trip. And it says Florida, written in white letters, probably um, silk screened on, um, probably in some logo that, you know, said Florida, you know, the Sunshine State or whatever. But in this case, it just said Florida in white letters. And it was found next to Richie's body. This article of clothing was um, admitted as evidence for forensics, lab testing. Okay. Now, what are they testing for? It, it, I couldn't find, I looked and I looked and I looked, but I couldn't find anywhere where it said that the shirt had blood on it. Yeah. Pre-DNA. Right. But my assumption, and once again, this is speculating somewhat, um, is that the shirt probably had blood on it. Right. Other than that, I don't know why they would bag it. It was bagged and it was tagged and, and it's in the report. Yeah. It gets one sentence at the bottom of page three in the death scene investigation report. And it says basically what you said. An orange tank top with the words Florida on the front is lying on the floor of the living room approximately two feet west of the body. It was right there. Right. Yeah. Now, I'm sure that if it were Chuck's, then Chuck would have said, oh, that's, you know, that's, I was doing laundry today and that must have fallen out of the basket or, or, you know, no, that's my shirt. I don't know how it got there, but that's my shirt or something like that. Um, but it's not. I mean, now, another detail that's in this deposition that I have right here, the 1983 Jerry Brakowski um, deposition, it says, asks Jerry point blank, do you own an orange tank top? Schwartz asks Jerry a couple times in this deposition, were you in Chuck's house the day that Richie was shot? Of course, Jerry said no. He said, do you own an orange tank top? Jerry said no. Now, that means that in 1983, when Chuck is being prosecuted for this other crime, for trying to get revenge on Jerry, that Chuck's lawyer, they deposed Jerry to get him to answer questions in order to strengthen Chuck's case. Chuck wants to have um, a reason for potentially hurting Jerry. Like he wants to say that, no, this guy, I'm, I'm still defending my property. And, and there's no way that Chuck could spin it to justify what he would have done to Jerry. Okay. But still through his lawyer, he's trying to establish the fact that he had just cause, you know. Now, this tank top is a piece of evidence that, you know, if, if that tank top were Chuck's, it wouldn't even be part of the question. It, it would have been forgotten. Like, why waste time on an orange tank top that Chuck knows is his or his wife's, you know? The only reason why they're still asking questions about it um, three years after the shooting is because they're trying to confirm that it belonged to Jerry or someone else, right? So, once again, 
This is an inconsistency. It's a discrepancy. If all Jerry did was helped Richie get through the window and then heard a gunshot and ran away, which is the official story, right? What, what is Richie carrying a spare shirt with him? As if it isn't hard enough to get through the window, mm-hmm. you know, and get into the house. Um, he would have to have it in his pocket or in his other hand or something like that. I don't know. But, um, but once again, it's, it's a detail that leaves me scratching my head. Is there a statement from Chuck from his arrest in 1983? No. I don't think he ever gave one. But Jerry made a statement. Yeah. And this one is really weird because Chuck is in the room with him, right? Right. He's being more honest this time. His first deposition, he's just lying. Like, he's he's just refusing to tell the truth, you know. It's not even inventive like the way Tony's, at least amusing to listen to his lies. Jerry's just like, you know, he's just doing the short answer, no, no, no. And there's nothing really interesting in the first one. But in this one, now that he knows that Chuck is trying to kill him, it took a lot just to get him to sit in this room with Chuck sitting on the other side of the table, you know, with the two lawyers there. Um, He even says, I I just want to read this. Mike reads uh, to me an excerpt from Jerry's second deposition, taken in March Um, of 1983. Chuck's defense attorney, Sheldon Schwartz, is basically explaining to Jerry why he's there. And he also tells Jerry that he must give a verbal response to his questions. You can't just shake your head. So, like, um, Jerry's, like, giving head motions and stuff instead of saying verbally yes or no. Right. So, the guy's, like, basically saying, uh, you, have to, you have to speak up, kid, you know. And from that point on, he's very hostile with Jerry. You know, he's really trying to rattle this kid. He, he's like, trying to call him a criminal and all this stuff. So, um, but he says... Uh, Schwartz continues with his line of questioning, Jerry says, yeah. he goes, asking Jerry 18. his age. Um, when did you turn 18? December 14th. And then he asks him this. By the way, for the record, you asked Mrs. Kogan, I believe, before, to make sure that Mr. Falco had no weapons on him. And then Jerry says, yeah, I did. In other words, like, yeah, the guy's trying to kill me, you fucker. This is a guy that's really scared. Yeah. Scared for his life. Right. That's why, so this deposition is good because he's being honest because he knows this is serious shit now. Tony Simmons told me in 2010 when I raised this issue with him. When you raised the issue about what specifically? About the alignment of the gun. Because there was one conversation I had with Tony where I was getting a little bit persistent. And I was really what I was trying to do in this conversation I was having with him was trying to get him to admit that he was in the house. Mm-hmm. At first, he said he wasn't there. Then he changed his story and he said that he, he admitted that he was there. 
Um, and so I said to Tony in 2010, I said, well, look, Tony, I still believe that that cassette was real, the one that Bob described to me. And the sounds that Bob Lane heard on that cassette could not have been recorded from where you say you were standing. Tony said he was more or less on the sidewalk and he was the lookout. And I said, but if you had the tape recorder with you, then you wouldn't have picked up anything because you'd be standing outside of the house when Richie got shot. So it doesn't make any sense. And I was pushing this on him and he, he was trying to deflect as usual, Tony Simmons deflecting um, and sort of playing ignorant, like not quite remembering things and stuff like that. And then I said, well, what about the alignment of the gun, Tony? I said, you know, Chuck, Chuck swears that he aimed the gun at the wall, you know, not directly at the door, but off to the side. And he interrupted me. He was so insistent. He didn't even let me finish what I was saying. And he says, Chuck aimed that gun at the door. There's no doubt about it. And I said, well, how do you know that? And he goes, I just know it, man. He goes, Chuck was trying to kill Jerry and he aimed that gun to kill. And, um, The only thing he was wrong about was that it was Richie and it wasn't Jerry. And so he set up that booby trap to kill Jerry. Chuck wanted Jerry dead. That's it. Next time on Booby Trap. He started to realize at that point that I knew that he had tried to incriminate me. For him to call me the next day and to admit to something like that, this is the story that Tony tells me. You could tell that he's trying to get Jerry to sort of place himself inside the house. Bob just felt like, hey, this is a burden you should be carrying, like not me. Okay, they want to take the pot, take the pot, but don't mess with the gun. Like a dumbass, he changed the alignment of the gun and he wound up killing Richie. The Miami Chronicle's Booby Trap is produced, written, and recorded by James Archer and Michael Fragaman. We'd like to thank the following people for their help and contributions in creating this episode. Dan Wool, Mark McCartney, Mr. Sonny Duval, Jennifer Fragamani, Otis Fodder, Liana Echeverry, and the team at the Apostrophe Podcast Company. But most of all, a very heartfelt thanks to you our listeners. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
Do you want to know more about vampires, werewolves, zombies, and man-made monsters? Would you like to know more about the classic Universal Monster movies responsible for creating the entire horror genre? Then listen to our podcast, Let's Talk Monsters. Where we discuss everything monsters. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts.